Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Connor Fraser. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news and bring you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. Join the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. On September 10th, 2022, the Conservative Party concluded a leadership race and announced Pierre Polyev as the third le- leader in seven years. After a seven-month race, Mr. Polyev won an overwhelming victory by taking nearly 68% of the vote on the first round, compared to roughly 14% for his nearest rival, Jean Charest. The face of Canada's official opposition has changed, and this will have important implications for the political game in our country going forward. Today, we sit down with a veteran party insider to understand exactly how the leadership race played out and perhaps what Canadians might expect from Mr. Polyevra and the Conservative Party going forward. My guest today is Mr. John Capobianco. And thank you very much for joining me on the show, John. Uh, to begin, I'm wondering if you, if, if I might ask you just to introduce yourself to our listeners, tell us how you've been involved with the Conservative Party in the past and what role, if any, you played in this leadership race. Sure, I'm happy to be here, Connor, and thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I've, so currently I am uh, a senior vice president, senior partner at a global strategic communications firm called Fleshman Hillard High Road. Um, and it is, a, uh, it is a firm that, that deals with um, helping clients and organizations on anything strategic from a communications perspective, from public affairs, government relations, uh, as well as you know any social digital media campaigns that they may need. And my specific responsibilities, I lead the public affairs effort. So I'm a registered lobbyist for, for um, uh, at all three levels of government, federally, provincially, and municipally in various municipalities. Uh, and I've been doing this for some 20 plus years. I used to work in the provincial government in Ontario some years ago, and then uh, made the move into into the government relations sector, and I've been there ever since. So that's my my current job. I've been politically active for oh my god since university days. I went to uh, York University and and got involved with the campus conservatives back then. Um, got involved with the Ontario Conservative Youth Wing uh, mm-hmm. back in the, back in the day uh, as the as the uh, OPCYA, the Ontario PC Youth Association president. Um, and then obviously kept, just kept getting involved at all levels of government and, and ultimately uh, ran as a candidate um, under, the, uh, under Stephen Harper when the new party, the Conservative Party of Canada, was created, which was a merging of two legacy parties being the Progressive Conservative Party and the Reform Party of Canada. And I was involved in that process as well, uh, what was then called Unite the Right Movement. Because if you recall, Connor, back in the day, there was two center-right parties that kept splitting the vote and allowed the Liberals to uh, to uh, to get into power. Um, so a, a number of individuals started the uh, the movement to unite the right, which ultimately um, cultivated in in what was the Alliance Party and then you know what is now called the Conservative Party of Canada. So I was involved in that. Ran as a candidate in the 2004 and 2006 election. Won both nominations but un, un, was unsuccessful in winning the general elections. Um, you know, obviously I'm, I'm from the GTA at Tobico uh, and, and just west mm-hmm. of Toronto, city of Toronto. And 
it's not necessarily a uh, fertile ground for conservatives in, in some cases, but nonetheless, that's a little bit of my a uh, little bit of my history. And so, during the most recent uh, leadership race, were you playing a part in any campaigns, or were you mostly taking uh, an analysis role, coming onto local talk shows, um, appearing in the national media, that sort of thing? Yeah, no, you know, it, it, the leadership the leadership campaign started in May. Um, and went right through, as you know, to September the 10th with the leadership election results. But during that time, the provincial election campaign was up and running. Uh, and uh, so for the, for the very first part of the, uh, of the federal leadership campaign, uh, the Ontario election was, was going on. And I was playing a significant role in my local riding campaign provincially. So I stayed out of the federal leadership race primarily because I wanted to focus on helping out my local uh, candidate get reelected as as she did uh, in the uh, Ontario election campaign, and then when that ended, um, I, um, I I didn't play a role because I, I was doing a lot of analysis, media analysis, and punditry work. So I wanted to make sure that I was able to do that in a way that didn't didn't you know create any biases or or any potential challenges. So I was able to speak freely of of all of the candidates and of the party of the process, mm-hmm. um, in, in which I was able to complement and 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 do. Um, um, you know, my, my work with, with all candidates without having to sort of, you know, favor one over the other. And, and quite frankly, I, I knew them all uh, quite well and, and would, would have been happy with any one of them, but, but very pleased that it was Pierre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, like you mentioned, so much has gone on this summer and it's so easy to forget that back in June, we had the provincial election in Ontario. And maybe if we have uh, some extra time, we can touch on that because I'm sure you have a lot of a lot of things to say. And speaking about the process, just before we get into the the substance of the race and what was said during the race, the policy issues and the outcomes, I wanted to uh, get your sense of of how these leadership campaigns work. What are the principles of running a good campaign? And is there an exceptional example, either good or bad, that that stands out from what happened over the past few months? Well, you know, and, and it was a very interesting, it was a long leadership race, Connor. It was a very long mm-hmm. race. As I talked about, it was May to, to September um, is, uh, is relatively long for a leadership race. And also it incorporated, you know, the, the ending of spring, the beginning of summer, and also the, the end of summer and the beginning of, of, uh, of fall almost uh, in a sense. So you kind of crossed a couple of seasons, but, you know, and, and when you have a leadership race that, that's that long, it, it's going to get um, chippy. Uh, and as we saw from this leadership race, you know, it was chippy. There was, as I, you know, to use the hockey analogy, the elbows in the corner, right? And, and leadership races aren't for the faint of heart because you're, you're there to convince uh, sign-up members and convince members that you've signed up to stay with you and vote for you in a process that is not a, it's not just a pure numbers um, um, uh, uh outcome, right? Because we've got a system, we've been the party, the conservatives have a system where every writing is weighted uh, mm-hmm. with 100 points. Uh, so, you know, you got some writings that might have 5,000 members and other writings that might have 300 members, but they're all weighted the same mm-hmm. uh, in order to give some equality to, uh, to the writings and, and to the regions. Um, so as a result, you know, candidates were out there signing up members uh, and signing up across Canada, not just in one specific region, because that wouldn't have favored them. So I think from that perspective, a lot of you know, good things came out because a lot of the candidates, the leadership candidates, literally had to go to all the regions of Canada uh, and campaign. 
to get members to uh, to sign up uh, in their respective writings. So from that perspective, I think it was it was good. And I would say, look, you know, there was you know the, the, there was some debates that happened that the party sponsored debates that were extremely chippy. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of your listeners that have that, have, that watched it, um, you know you'll you'll recall there's a couple of debates that the two debates that happened were were somewhat uh, somewhat you know um, um, you know uh, chippy for this way I I would say it. others would say it a different word different word but um, but I think that was necessary because there was such a divergent of of issues and visions that each of the candidates had uh, in that leadership campaign you know so. So I think from that perspective, it, you're, you're bound to get some level of discourse and some level of disagreement. So I would say that overall, um, you know, it was a really good leadership campaign in that there was record number of members that memberships that were sold. You know, the Conservative Party, I, I'm going to round up to about 700,000 um, members that joined the Conservative Party, which is made, not only is it historic in the Conservative context, but I think it's historic in any political party context to have that many members sign up. Uh, and they weren't signing up for free. Like you had to pay, you know, uh, a, a nominal money, nominal uh, uh, membership fee. Um, but to have that number of members uh, is an incredibly good story for the Conservatives and, and for Pierre, who obviously is now the leader of the Conservative Party, but also the amount of money that was raised by all the candidates, but most specifically by Pierre and the millions. Um, that makes them, um, makes the party and makes Pierre uh, literally campaign ready, you know, because obviously we're in a minority government, as you know, and, and a minority government can literally end at any time, notwithstanding the fact that the Liberals and the NDP have this pact or this coalition that is supposed to keep them alive until 2025, but that could end within the next year or two. So I think that that Pierre having that many members that signed up for him, the fact that he won a resounding uh, first ballot victory and the fact that he's got millions of dollars that he's raised can easily be transferable uh, into uh, into election readiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. There's a number of, of uh, things that you said that I want to, kind of elaborate on and pick your brain about, starting with the length of the race, which you mentioned was May to September. And of course, Aaron O'Toole resigned or was ousted back in February, which was even longer ago. And there's been lots of talk in conservative circles, in the media as well, about the length of the race and comparisons made to the United Kingdom, where simultaneously they've had their own conservative leadership race done in much uh, and on a much shorter time frame. So do you feel that the race was was just too long, especially considering that the outcome was a lot of people saw it coming from a long mile away? Was this just simply too long of a race or what what would you say to justify the length of this leadership race? Yeah, I personally feel it was too long. I also I, I in having watched, uh, as you mentioned, having watched the UK Conservative Party elect the prime minister, not only just the leader of the mm-hmm. conservative party in the UK, but also that that, that person, Liz Truss, you know, is now the prime minister of, of the of UK. I thought it was interesting because there's a lot of a lot of comparisons in a sense of of how they did it. Not comparisons, but but you know, ways of saying, well look, they did a good job of it. Why can't we do the same thing? Which is to to have you know um, uh, caucus eliminate uh, you know have candidates put their names forward but sort of winnow it down to you know two uh, and have and have the membership you know elect the, the, the two members uh, of the two members one I think that's an interesting way of doing it because 
you know, caucus plays a big role. Um, now, there's far more caucus members in the UK um, Conservative Party than there are here in, in, uh, in our Conservative Party. So, but I, I think it's an interesting uh, comparison to make uh, and, uh, and whether or not there'd be any, any discussions about changing the rules. I, I, I don't think there will be. I, I remember the debate when we were once a delegated system. Uh, and when I say delegated system, where you know, every riding uh, allowed, were allowed to pick, um, say, 10, 15 or so delegates that then represented their, the riding to a convention where those delegates would then pick the leader. And, you know, there was a lot of fun and hoopla and there was a lot of, you know, backroom, you know, machinations that happened and it was all newsworthy and it, and it captured the excitement of the media. So, you know, when we, when the party went from that to what we now call a one member, one vote system, uh, which essentially is, you know, anybody that joins uh, by a certain date is, uh, is able to pick the leader. Um, you know, it's hard to, to put the genie back in the bottle. It's hard to then go from a very open, very, very accessible leadership process that we have now mm -hmm. back to a system that's a bit more um, regulated to a few making the decision for the many um, and, and on, on a, such an important you know, decision as a leader of the party and, and future, the future prime minister of, of the country. So you know, I think that there might be some comparisons. I think that the system we've got now is you know, there's always some issues with it. But by and large, you know, it's allowed us to have 700,000 members, um, you know, that that have signed up and, and paid their dues. And uh, and, you know, that that'll never happen in a delegated system, uh, not to that extent. So it, I think it's I think it worked well. Um, I was a supporter of this process of the of the one member one vote process. I think the fact that we've also got a weighted system and the writing where each writing is, you know, as I mentioned, is, is 100 points. Um, and, and makes it even across across the board uh, does allow for the candidates to have to travel in every region of the of the country and not just focus on the ridings that have them that might have the most conservative members in them. So from that perspective, I think it's worked well. You know, um, but there's always some level of tinkering whether or not you know you should have it a bit more weighted uh, versus the ridings that have more members versus the ones that don't. But by and large, um, you know, it's worked in the past. And, and for Pierre, it certainly worked well for him, given the fact that he he won so resoundedly with 68 percent of the vote um, that pretty much, you know, that pretty much, you know, quashed any concerns of, of any potential party division. Mm -hmm. And I, I wondered if we could circle back to what you said about how is it's sort of like each riding, regardless of whether there's 300 or or 5000 members sort of counts the same and you mentioned there's 100 points per riding is it that each riding there there is a vote a mini vote for the leadership uh contest and whoever wins that riding carries that riding and then all the ridings are tallied up and 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 then we we find find out the winner or is that 100 points per riding split between all of the candidates and then counted towards the the national total yeah, it's split between all of the candidates, right? So there would it would there would be a percentage that would be assigned to it. But um, I would say that um, you know, for instance, in my riding of Etobicoke Lakeshore, and of course it was a mail-in ballot, which uh, which is convenient, 
uh, you know, the pro it, it's 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 a bit somewhat complicated in the sense of of you know you have got to get a pass you've got to get a photo you got to photocopy your 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 driver's license or other appropriate um, applicable ID you've got to fill out fill out the ballot you've got to fill out a couple of forms throw them all into an envelope and then mail it by a certain date and uh, and then the party will uh, will process it but you know my my membership my vote will be tagged to Etobicoke Lakeshore. So yep. Etobicoke Lakeshore would have say 2,000 members at the end of the of the membership drive, uh, and of those two of, of those um, uh, memberships that went uh, went into uh, party headquarters and and and, uh, and ultimately the count, you know, um, I think in in my writing specifically, I think Pierre ended up getting 60 mid 60 percent of the vote. Uh, you know, Jean Charest came in at say 15 or 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 25 percent of the vote, and then it was spread out amongst the others. So you would get you would get the percentage assigned or the points, if you will, uh, of the hundred assigned, and then mm -hmm. it's the first candidate that gets 50 percent plus one of the of, of the totality of the points of all of the 338 ridings that is declared the winner. Uh, and in some cases, as we've seen in past leadership contests. Mostly, uh, and I think the last person who won it on the first ballot was Stephen Harper when he became leader of the new Conservative Party of Canada. Uh, and he was running against Belinda Stronach and Tony Clement. And Stephen Harper won on the first ballot, not nearly as high the, a vote percentage as Pierre, but, but yet decisive and, and, and pretty, uh, and, and pretty uh, resoundedly uh, won that race. But since then, every leadership race has come down to fairly close numbers. You know Andrew Shear, if you recall, when he beat um, when he beat Bernier. Um, thank you, uh, uh, Maxime Bernier. Um, you know, won by just a slaw, slim percentage of the vote, and uh, and there was always some dissension that that created after that. And then Aaron O'Toole, who of course came out of nowhere and beat Peter McKay, who was then the odds-on favorite. Um, again, that was a fairly a fairly close uh, a fairly close leadership race as well. So I I think that the peer winning as much as he did. Uh, certainly helps quash any potential, you know, divisive rumors of, of you know, you know, one side or another wanting to leave the party. So I think from that perspective, uh, certainly none of none of that none of that argument has been happening uh, since Pierce went. Now, when you say that the rules of this leadership race advantage certain regions of the country above others or certain factions of the party above others? Is there any substantiation to someone who would make an argument like that? No, I don't, I don't think it would. In fact, I, I think the process is actually set up so that it doesn't advantage any one region or any one province over the other, right. uh, notwithstanding how small or how maybe conservative uh, historically one province or one region has voted in the past. Um, or, or quite frankly, if one riding has, you know, extremely higher membership numbers than other ridings, it, the system is, is, is built in such a way that, you know, say you take a riding in Alberta, which might have, say, 15,000 conservative members, and a riding in, say, you know, pick a province in Atlantic Canada, say, you know, Newfoundland or, or PEI, where the conservative riding might have a thousand or 500 members in a normal race if it wasn't the system the way it is now you would you would instinctively focus your time on the writing that has 15,000 members so mm -hmm. you would spend an inordinate amount of time unproportionate amount of time in Alberta or Saskatchewan or Manitoba 
because they've got the vast majority or the highest numbers of conservative members in those specific provinces and in, and in, the, in the, the writings within those provinces. So, but the system, the way it is now is whatever the number of, of members you've got in one of those, one of those writings in one of those provinces out West, um, it amounts to a hundred points, right? So the, the 15,000 members in, you know, in pick a writing in Alberta, versus the, fifth, the, the, the 500 members and pick the writing and PEI, you're still going to get the percentage of the vote split given to you by way of points. And that's the purpose of it. It does allow for um, candidates to have to travel and have to reach, reach every, every province of, of, of the country, which I think is, is, is right, uh, is, is the way it should be. And, you know, and some, some in the West feel that it's, un, it's not fair in some ways. And I've been at conventions where some MPs and others have tried to change the systems to make it a bit more weighted so that mm-hmm. if a riding does have 15,000 members, they should have proportionally higher number of points assigned to a candidate. Um, but, you know, over the number of years and the number of conventions where that rule or that amendment has tried to get through, it's never never succeeded because the ultimate agreement between um, Peter McKay and Stephen Harper, if you recall, Connor, Peter McKay being the leader of the conserv- progressive conservatives and Stephen Harper being the uh, the Canadian Alliance at the time, um, when they made the pact to form this, this merger, the deal was the system that we have today was, was part of that agreement. So th- it is what it is, but I do think it allows for more equality. Mm-hmm. And so during this campaign, there was a lot more traveling to far off region, uh, far off regions rather of the country that might not have otherwise gotten as much attention. Can you, is there an example that stands out in your mind of one of the candidates making a pitch to voters in a certain region of the country that, that arose as, or was incentivized as part of, as part of the system? Well, you know, I, I not not one that comes to mind, but you know, I I, I haven't I haven't watched the race closely, obviously, and 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 um, commented on it as a pundit uh, throughout the election, throughout the leadership race. You know, they've gone, they went all over the place. Like I, there was not one. You know, I think the party sanctioned to LEOC, which is the Leadership Election Organizing Committee, LEOC for short, uh, the acronym uh, is is a subset of the party that is you know looks after the leadership race and comes up with all the rules and regulations and whatnot. They organized two official debates. And, uh, and one was in Quebec and one was in Edmonton, if I recall correctly. So, you know, again, so they tried to, you know, make sure that, that the regions were represented. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think every candidate, as far as I know, went to every province, Uh, maybe some provinces more than others, but certainly they, there were events and I was just seeing on social media, events and fundraising events and rallies that were happening literally from coast to coast. So, uh, you know, not one that sticks out, but certainly I think it would behoove every candidate to do the travels. Some candidates might, might've had more favorable responses in one province over another. So strategically, Connor, they might've stayed in one or two provinces, you Mm -hmm. know, because they felt that that's more where they might be able to get some of the votes. And I would say probably some of the candidates that, that, you know, didn't fare well, right? The ones that were in single digits probably realized that, you know, resources and and time commitments and whatnot, that they probably focused, you know, on two or three provinces more exclusively because they had more of a favorable message to to that 
specific province or region. But you know, Jean Charest and and uh, Pierre Polvev, the two the, we're considered the two top tier can the top uh, you know one and celebrity, two yeah, superstar yeah, candidates yeah, <laughs> from the beginning. Uh, they would have traveled to every province and every region of Canada, and, I, and I'm sure most of the other candidates did as well. This is Beyond the Headlines. You've been listening to a conversation about the 2022 Conservative Party of Canada leadership race, and we're joined by our guest, John Capobianco. Thank you for tuning in, and remember to add your voice to the debate by sending us a comment on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. So, John, before we continue with the discussion, and I want to get more into, into the, the actual stuff that happened during the leadership race by way of policy and outcomes, but one question I wanted to pose to you before we move on was, was doesn't this model where the leadership race revolves around selling as many memberships as possible to people who weren't previously members of the party disenfranchise longstanding members? And what are the sentiments and feedback you're getting from your contacts who are longtime party members? And really what incentive for them exists to remain engaged with the party when they know that whenever a leadership race comes around, your neighbor or, or, or sunshine members who might not truly be conservatives can just sign up and, and participate. Well, and I think it goes back to, uh, it's an interesting question and an interesting, an interesting debate, I guess, from, from the perspective of whether or not somebody who just signs up, you know, it, it becomes sort of a newer member of the conservative party, um, you know, has an equal vote as, as, you know, maybe I, who've been in the, in the party for, for the last 30 plus years of my life, you know, but I think that I would rather have somebody who decides for whatever reason um, that they want to join the party uh, and that they pay the, the membership dues and they, and they you know, faithfully sign the, the, the oath that they want to be a member of the Conservative Party. Uh, I'd rather have that than the way it was before where, uh, you know, I'm somebody who's been in the party for 30 years. And, you know, when I say the, the way the system was before, the delegated system. Where writings were 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 tasked that they had to elect, you know, ten to fifteen people that were then delegates to a convention. I, I would be more ticked off if I, somebody who's been in the party for that long, put my name forward to be a delegate. I didn't get voted to be a delegate for whatever reason. Maybe it was on the wrong slate or what have you. Uh, and somebody uh, that might have been a member for say a year who was on the right slate became a delegate. And that person then was tasked to pick the leader. And I had no mm. right or no ability to be able to influence that voter or what have you. I would be more ticked, I think, from that perspective versus the fact that, you know, as a member of the party, I have a vote and my vote, my one vote counts. Right. It's like anybody that during general election campaign where some people say, well, I'm not going to vote. It doesn't really matter. Well, it does. Right. It, it allows you to be able to to, you know, criticize governments and to and to be part of it because you were part of the process and and leadership election campaigns with one number one vote is no different where your vote you know in the hundreds of thousands that have voted but your vote counts and you you've made a you made a conscious democratic effort to to um, um, to allow your voice to be heard and, and through a, through a vote so that system I think is far better than than the other one where you are literally um, you could be disenfranchised by the fact that you, you know, you, you might not be a delegate and therefore not even have a vote to who the lead, next leader of the party is. 
if that if that you, you understand where that where, I'm, where my point is on that which is better to have a vote even though your neighbor might join you know for the sake of the leadership vote but at least that person signed up and became a member at a certain time um, and was maybe convinced by a, a specific argument that any one candidate was was proffering them um, but at least they're 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 now a member of the party and they'll, they'll likely stay in and and some don't but some do and and will will become active members of the party so I'm, I'm getting your sense that it, it essentially democratizes membership and maybe broadens the appeal of the party to those Canadians who are conservatives on the margin but might not you know be involved in a day-to-day -day basis but they still want to participate in the election and in the leadership race and have their say and pay their dues and Maybe that also yes. helps with fundraising as well with the yeah. with the party fundraising. Yeah, in fact, I would even say, Connor, that that it, it it allows it allows that level of participation where you know the party had a hundred thousand, give or take, you know, a, a couple of thousand members before the leadership race, and now they've got close to rounding up to seven hundred thousand members. So, in the process of the election, the leadership election, which say it was started in in May officially, but maybe even before that. To September, the party signed up, you know, 500,000 plus new members. Uh, you know, the party, when I say the party, the leadership candidates did. Well, that would never have happened in any other form of, of, of a leadership race, most, most notably the, the, the previous delegated convention system. So we now have 500,000 new members that came on as a result of the leadership race. Now, will some of them you know, some of them were signed up for, for various candidates. And if their candidate lost, they'll likely maybe not sign on again. Um, but the fact that Pierre won so handily uh, meant that the vast majority of those members that, that were signed up were by his campaign. So they will likely stay on mm -hmm. uh, and support their candidate, which again, to your point, not only from, from a membership, um, you know, perspective and convention perspective, but also fundraising. Mm -hmm. And that's a positive sign. And, and, and so now getting into more of, you know, the what happened during the race, in your opinion, what were the top defining moments of the leadership race for you and why? Uh, I would say there's there's a couple. Um, I think Pierre's campaign came off pretty strong at the beginning by trying to define himself uh, and also define his opponents. Mm hmm. And that was a very smart, smart strategic ploy that that they that they um, um, enacted because, you know, Pierre has a history, had a history within the House of Commons, in his role as critic, finance mm -hmm. critic, that he would hold the feet to the fire of the Minister of Finance, whether or not it was Bill Morneau or the current Minister of Finance, Chrystia Freeland. Uh, and even the prime minister, be it at a committee hearing uh, on any one of the scandals that the liberal government was under was undergoing at the time, um, or any other thing that was in general, you know, misspending of, of government money or taxpayers' money. But Pierre had a had a built a, a credibility or a brand of being this articulate, strong um, uh, opposition critic. Well, he was able to carry that into the leadership campaign, and not only was he critical of the liberal government, he was also critical of his opponents. Um, in a in a in a battle, as I mentioned earlier, where, where their elbows were in the corner on a, on a regular basis, I think that was one defining part that that was that was pretty significant in the campaign. I think the other one was when the party disqualified Patrick Brown. Mm -hmm. um, Patrick, who um, uh, 
was the leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party for some time and then resigned under some allegations of, of sexual misconduct that he had always denied. Um, and subsequently, the CTV that originally launched the, the allegations um, uh, settled with, uh, with, with Patrick since then. But, but he resigned at the party and then uh, went on to become mayor of Brampton which is which he's, he still is mayor of Brampton, but then decided to throw his hat into the conservative leadership race. And as a result of that, Patrick uh, has a reputation of being a, an extreme, extremely hard worker, somebody who really does um, work with and, and partner with multicultural and ethnic groups uh, across, across Canada, but most particularly in Ontario. So he was, he was able to sign up a significant amount of, amount of membership. We don't, we don't know, but Patrick claims Patrick's campaign claims he signed up about 150,000 members of the of the 700,000. So I think when the party disqualified him because they 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 researched it and they they obviously found that there was some potential elections uh, on uh, Canada um, infringements or or or, or um, issues. Uh, again, that's that that. It's ongoing now with respect to the, the the Patrick Brown campaign will deny that the party is pretty sure that they that they have evidence that showed that he was um, that he was contravening the Elections Canada Act. Mm-hmm. So as a result, him dropping out of that race was a significant uh, factor in the race and did change the dynamic of it because there was a, there was an unofficial pact between Jean Charest and Patrick Brown where you know the two of them were working together because for them to in their campaign it was anybody but pierre so it was either one of the two but as long as it wasn't pierre and patrick coming out of that i think deflated jean charay's campaign because patrick had signed more memberships than josh ray did so i think that was another factor that uh, that played out and then i would say the debates as well connor were were the three major, uh, um, I think, milestones of, of the of the of the leadership race that I think had a, a profound effect on the result. Um, yeah, let's. I, I definitely wanted to touch on on Patrick Brown because Patrick Brown and Jean Charest were part of the progressive, more progressive wing of the party. But despite the fact that Patrick was disqualified from the race, uh, uh, Pierre still won an overwhelming majority on the first ballot, and the nearest contender, who was Mr. Charest, wasn't even close. So, no. what what happened to this progressive wing of the party, and what does this constituency do next? Well, I think you know uh, the Conservative Party has always been an open tent party, and with that comes criticism. Criticism because there are certain factions of the Conservative Party that some people you know, will malign, like the social conservatives or the populist side of the, of the party. But we've always managed to, to um, bring in as many people that are, are conservative-minded mm-hmm. in a sense of making sure that they believe that in economic freedom, individual rights and responsibilities, um, you know, the opportunity to be able to, to prosper in a country that, that will allow you to do that and create a level playing field where everybody can do that, but a government that also helps those that can't help themselves. You know, if you believe in those fundamental conservative ideals and principles, then there's room for you in the party. And, and whether or not you might be one, have one issue that you favor more than the other, um, that's fine. And, and so those that might peg themselves or, or, or label themselves as sort of the progressive or the red Tory mm-hmm. side of the party, 
Well, there's always uh, there's always room for 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 them as well as there are for those that might be a bit more predisposed to be conservative uh, or small c conservative or more right wing, um, if you will. But but we all get along because there's a there's a there's a fundamental basic conservative principles and ideals that we all believe in that carries the conservative party forward. Um, and I think that Pierre. Uh, certainly reflected one one aspect of that and, and more the populist kind of, you know, building on the freedom, freedom of expression, freedom of uh, being able to protest, uh, if you will, peacefully, freedom of, of choice, women's choice, freedom of, of, of economic freedom. Like those are things that he built his campaign around and his brand around, whereas Jean Charest and Patrick Brown focused almost exclusively as, as the progressive moderate sides of the party, both have legitimate arguments. But I think what happened organizationally is that Jean Charest's campaign just never picked never picked up. Like I think his, his arguments about how he saved Canada legitimately and credibly that he did um, when he was, uh, when he was, when the country was going through some, some pretty deep and, and divisive challenges uh, which obviously let let him and, uh, and and launched him to be the premier of Quebec. Those arguments happened uh, back in in the 90s, when a lot of voters either were too young or weren't even born yet. So he was appealing and making this message about how he was the one that saved Canada again, quite rightly. But people were saying, "Well, I don't remember that." And and quite frankly, right now, I can't pay my, I can't pay, I can't go to visit my friend because I have no gas. I can't pay for the gas, and I've got to make a choice between, you know, um, milk versus. But you know, th there's a lot of real life challenges that are that are facing Canadians. Pierre focused on that almost exclusively, whereas you know the other campaigns didn't almost ex exclusively. And I think that might have been the issue versus. You know whether or not it was a progressive versus a right wing uh, uh, divide. I think it was more um, who who had who captured the imagination of of the of the voters that that they were able to sign up. And Pierre obviously you know had had that um, in, in hand, whereas the other ones didn't. And then as we mentioned, with Patrick leaving, um, most of his voters didn't vote, uh, and and the idea was that they would have voted. Charest, John Charest and Patrick Brown voters would have voted for each other one and two because it's a preferential mm -hmm. system. You pick one, you pick your second, your third, and your fourth. And the, the idea was that the Charest Brown people would be picking one and two of themselves. But when Patrick Brown was disqualified and his voters stayed home, that didn't help out Charest at all. And, and it was reflected in the final results. Um, interesting. Yeah, because I would have. I, I was shocked. I would have expected, like you mentioned, one of the two to pick up the votes from the other. But for, for whatever reason, maybe Jean Charest's message just wasn't resonating as much with yeah. people's day-to-day -day needs. But speaking about inflation and how people are, are struggling so much right now, which has been the focus of, of Pierre Polyevre, this has been his steady horse issue for the last couple of years since the pandemic started. I'm just imagining a world and i would ask you and our listeners to imagine a world three years from now when the 2025 election comes around let's say inflation is back under control because the bank of canada has raised interest rates the supply chain issues have been sorted out people have forgotten about the pandemic well they've already kind of forgotten about, about the pandemic to be honest um isn't this a massive risk to pierre polyevre for having championed this issue of inflation 
Um, and, and if everything sort of works out, uh, the economy naturally works this out with the help of the Bank of Canada, um, how, how is he going to capture the imagination of Canadians when it comes time for a general election, having pegged himself on an issue so, so uh, wholeheartedly? Well, it's not to say that he's gonna, you know, he's gonna stick to that. There's, there's gonna be a policy platform that the, that that he and his team will be will be able to build leading up to the election uh, campaign. So it won't be just on that. But I think, you know, and we're all hoping that that inflation does come down and that the prices do come down. So even if that was to happen within the next year to two years or even three years, although tough to say that it will, because a lot of the economists and, and the governor of the Bank of Canada project this may be going on for some time. Uh, although they're trying to manage it now. But the argument can be made uh, quite successfully that Pierre was the one that drove it. You know, the, 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 the constant um, attention that he uh, focused on during the leadership campaign and since then in the House of Commons, since he's been the leader of the official opposition, you know, arguably can be, can be said that that created Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in his, in his caucus and, and, and government, to make the changes that they needed to. As we saw, there were some policies that came down this week where, you know, tripling the, uh, or doubling, but he's certainly increasing the, the GST tax credit to families and, and, and policies of that sort that, that are gonna help Canadians immediately are, are good policies. And one could be made that, that you know, he was, he was rushing them to make those because of the pressure that Pierre Paul have put on him. Now, are they going to be enough? No. Pierre Polovev has been saying in the House of Commons that there are a lot of taxes that are going to be pl placed onto, onto Canadians, but that he's asking the prime minister and his government to, uh, to stop the tax cuts. And, and hopefully he'll listen to that. So I think there's a lot of, there's a narrative where Pierre could say, if the economy and, and hoping that the economy does um, progressively do that does well and that inflation is under control and, 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 and goes back down. Pierre, there's an error that Pierre could say that, oh, well, it's because I, he was the one that, that put the feet to the fire, if you will, of the prime minister and the government to do that. Uh, and, and, and then, so that's on that issue, but there will be other issues too, with respect to our foreign policies that, that Pierre um, is focused on the, 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 the ethics of government in general, uh, something that that Pierre has uh, Pierre has talked about in general. Those will all be issues that will be front and center. But you know what happens today versus what happens when the next election is, be it one, two, or three years hence. Um, there could be a whole there, you know God forbid there could be another pandemic where, mm -hmm. where things you know get uh, get to a point where they were two two three years ago. God forbid. But um, you don't know what's going to happen. But I think you, you've got a leader now. The Conservatives have a leader now who is articulate, um, uh, understands the messaging, super smart, understands what Canadians want because he truly went coast to coast to coast to hear what they had to say over the course of the last seven, eight months, and I think is ready to become prime minister. For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Beyond the Headlines. We are a weekly public affairs talk show that airs every Monday at 11 on CIUT 89.5 in Toronto, online through our website and across podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This week, we are taking a deep dive into the 2022 Conservative Party of Canada leadership race. And for that discussion, we're incredibly grateful to be joined by Mr. John Capibianco. Have you enjoyed the conversation so far? Want to add your voice? Check out our Twitter account and send us a tweet 
at beyond underscore headlines. If you have suggestions or feedback for our show, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're listening. So just to summarize what you what you were saying there, John, before this short break, essentially, even though inflation might go down in a couple of years, Pierre is always going to be able to say, I I championed this issue from the beginning. And because I was hounding so hard and I, I was ultimately one of the key players who brought the government's attention to this issue and Canadians will be able to understand that. And also there's a, a, a plethora of other issues which Pierre has has very as strong opinions about that he's been very consistent about that will that will take shape during the general election. Um, I wanted to just being mindful of the time, move on to to talk about the issues that matter uh, most to conservatives and, and and the policy issues that that Pierre has expressed during the campaign. I'm thinking about about housing. Pierre has said he wants to get tough with municipalities to build more housing uh, for Canadians and make it more affordable. Um, on social issues, he's been very outspoken about campus free speech, public broadcasting, immigration, uh, climate change. I'm not sure what Pierre has said on the climate change front other than we want to get rid of the carbon tax, build more pipelines and, and get our energy exports to international markets. There's a lot of issues there. We don't have a lot of time. Which which of those would you like to talk about? And and, and I'll I'll let you I'll let you add your your two cents. Well, no, and, and Connor, you did a, a, a an honorable job in sort of listing all of the key pro, key key policy areas or buckets that that certainly were discussed during the leadership campaign. But I think matter to all Canadians, you know, now. So not only were they were they with the debated within the leadership race in the context of the of the candidates and, and, and to the people that they were trying to appeal to, uh, which garnered the, 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 the massive membership numbers that the party got. But I think any one of those issues are going to be is going to be key uh, in the upcoming election. The environment is one that is always important, and especially because as conservatives, you know, we, and Pierre's talked about this um, um, all the time, not only, you know, as a leadership candidate now as leader, leader of the official opposition, but certainly as, a, as a, an MP and, and critic, where he's talked about the fact that we've got such, this country is blessed uh, with, with natural resources. Uh, and the fact that we can't transport it uh, and import uh, um, the oil or, from one province to another province to, to other areas of, 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 of Canada uh, is a tragedy. Um, and the fact that we have to rely on foreign oils, uh, foreign oil and, and foreign uh, exports uh, is uh, is quite is quite a, 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 quite a challenge, quite frankly. So I think that's going to be one where you're going to hear Pierre talk a lot about as well, uh, not only during leadership, but during during the lead up into an election campaign. The economy, I think, is uh, is going to be number one. Um, you know the famous saying that uh, that everybody quotes um, from uh, Bill Clinton or Bill Clinton is the guess, economy stupid? Yeah, the, the Bill Bill uh, Bill Clinton's campaign manager at the time, who said George Stephanopoulos, <laughs> it's the economy stupid. Well, that's that's exactly right, and 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 it, it's the economy when things are good because you want to make sure that that it stays that way. But most definitely when the economy is not good, as was as is the case here, where. There's some there's some growth that's happening, but 
job numbers uh, are stalling and the inflation is high and prices are high. And I think that's what Canadians want to focus on. All the other stuff is important. Obviously, healthcare is, is hugely important and what we have to do with healthcare. And, and that's going to be an issue to be debated as well. But, but the economy for now, I think, Connor, because we're so in, involved in it, because no matter where you are in life or, or what stage you are, or what part of the country, when you go to put in gas, when you go to buy groceries, you, we're all affected by it. Uh, and that's something that I think is going to be is going to be critical uh, in in, uh, in the lead up to the election campaign. And again, as you said, you know, hopefully it'll turn to the to the positive as as it gets on there. But but you know, the last three days in the House of Commons, um, when the House is re- resumed after the Queen's uh, un- un- unfortunate passing, um, Pierre, every question has been on the economy. Mm-hmm. And not not on the not on the, the the macro, but on the micro, like on the on the sort of the pocketbook issues, which which Canadians understand and appreciate someone looking after them and speaking for them. Um, just being mindful of the time. Do you have five uh, more minutes past yep. our original deadline uh, to to stay on? I just I just want to make sure I I don't ask too many questions so that we we go way over time, but. Um, Okay, so now just coming back to the the key players in the Conservative Party who were who were part of this race, uh, who aside from Mr. Polyevra, who were the biggest winners emerging from this race, and, and who were the biggest losers? Well, I, I, I would say the biggest winners, um, other than other than Pierre, obviously, um, I think would would be uh, Scott Agenson, um, who. Uh, was, really? was, a, was a really good candidate. I think, you know, he didn't garner a lot of, of votes percentage wise. I think he was certainly single digits, probably lower single digits. But the impact that he had on the leadership race, you know, he, he was uh, he was an MP, a sitting MP, member mm-hmm. of parliament for, for Muskoka, um, was a mayor uh, of a small town or small region within Muskoka before mm-hmm. he became a member of parliament. Uh, virtually unknown outside of outside of Ottawa and outside of conservative circles, and even quite frankly, some conservatives didn't even know him. I certainly know him, and 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 uh, he's a friend and, and somebody who I respected. But Scott, I think, uh, came out a winner, uh, and I know that you're, you're on a time crunch as well, um, so I can't uh, go on too much. But other than to say, uh, he just tried to bring some levity uh, during debates and during the, during the political discourse when things got really really tense and hectic and. And in some cases, you know, ugly, uh, he would try to, you know, remind people that we're here to be united. We've got one enemy, that's the liberals, not not ourselves, and and added some some levity to it to kind of, you know, break the ice. So that was really an, an appeal to a lot of people. Obviously, it was a long shot from the win, but I thought he came out a winner. Um, I'm not sure Roman Babber came out a winner or a loser. I think he, you know, tried to make a pitch and tried to be the anti-vaccine guy that, you know, said, I'm the one that fought governments to to open up sooner than they did but he, he kind of fell flat um so i would probably put him on the side of loser than, than a winner but um but in leslie lewis i thought you know again she she had a really strong leadership campaign connor last time when she ran uh in the aaron o'toole peter mckay race mm-hmm. where she uh, virtually out of nowhere uh, came in third and, and you know and that launched her to become a conservative mp um, and she threw her hat in the ring this time, but she didn't get nearly as many votes as she did in the first leadership race. So, you know, I think there's a role for her to play. I just, I, I don't think that she would be considered a winner in that regard. I think she was trying to, to do better than she did last time. 
Um, and um, and yeah, so I think that that's how I would break down the uh, sort of the, the the field. And and as for uh, Mr. O'Toole and Mr. O'Shear, the party's two most recent former leaders, they're still around and they're still active in the party uh, as MPs. Can you tell me just briefly about any role that they played in this leadership race and and what role that you expect from them in the future? Are they going to be on the front lines? on the sidelines, uh, because in the past, I'm, I'm remembering some, some conservative uh, former leaders like um, Joe Clark, for example, that lost the leadership, but then came back to serve on as a, an important ministerial position. So do, do you see any of them hanging around or are they, are they kind of out? No, I would say, I would say that, um, um, especially in the case of Andrew Scheer, uh, you know, he was all in with Pierre early on, uh, forcefully, and, and yeah. made no bones about the fact that he was supporting uh, Pierre uh, from the get-go, and 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 that's paid off uh, incredibly well for for Andrew Scheer. He's, I think, uh, sort of certainly part of the Pierre leadership caucus leadership team, mm-hmm. uh, and I believe he's house leader and sitting like literally front row right next to Pierre. So he's played he played a uh, he's playing a very big role and will continue to play a big role. So Andrew Scheer, I thought, did very well out of it. Errol Tool, I think, didn't didn't really uh, factor in, didn't really lean in, because I guess as the outgoing leader of the Conservative Party, wanted to play uh, probably a more neutral role and, and stay out of the race. So I don't, I didn't see him getting engaged in any significant way. Um, but again, somebody who's been an MP for some time, a cabinet minister in the, in the Harper government, uh, and and a former leader, I'm sure he'll he'll play uh, a role in some way. I think for the leadership. Uh, announcement that on the Saturday night, um, he piped in a message of unity and and bringing the party together. So I think from that perspective, he um, uh, he will uh, he'll play a, a, some role. But certainly, out of the, of the two, Andrew Shear will be a far more significant player uh, moving forward under under Pierre Polyev. Um, uh, you know, opposition now and and hopefully a, a government in in, uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have time for one? One final question. Yes, for sure. Which was the curious endorsement of Pierre mid-campaign by by Stephen Harper. What, in your view, was the political calculus behind this? Because a lot of people at the time were speculating that Stephen Harper was really concerned that the party could be captured by someone like, like Jean Charest. So was it out of genuine concern that Stephen Harper went forward with his endorsement or do you see it more of just a, you know, a more of a benevolent gesture between friends and how much sway does Mr. Harper still hold in the party? Well, I I, I would say significant sway in the party, obviously, as elections go by and, and time goes by since his time as prime minister and the party gets newer and newer members, I think. His power will obviously uh, dilute itself a bit, but but still, you know, he was a, a very successful uh, next to Brian Mulroney, uh, who was prime minister for eight years. Um, you know, Stephen Harper was uh, was prime minister for for close to that. Um, you know, those are the two significant uh, people in our party federally, uh, mm-hmm. and the fact that Stephen Harper was able to merge the parties and bring it together and then bring it to government was not insignificant and, and a huge feat. So I think there's a lot of people, I ran under Stephen Harper, so I'm very loyal uh, to Stephen Harper and, and still am. So I think his endorsement had a huge, huge positive impact on Pierre. 
Um, and those, those of us that have that follow conservative politics and are conservatives that have watched Stephen Harper, not, not one person is surprised that he supports, that he was supportive of Pierre uh, versus Jean Charest. Um, I don't think Stephen Harper or Jean Charest ever saw eye to eye on anything from a political policy perspective. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I think there was no surprise. Now, there were, the surprise was that he actually publicly did endorse a candidate, whereas, you know, he, he might not have, but it's his prerogative to do so. And I think it helped Pierre quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And with that, um, I, I think I would like to thank you for joining me today. It was a great, really insightful conversation. And as, as always, we really appreciate your time. Well, my pleasure, Connor. Thank you so much. And, uh, and happy to come back on if you ever need it. Once again, that was John Capabianco, who joined us for a post-mortem analysis of the 2022 Conservative Party of Canada leadership race. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Today's show was produced by myself, Connor Fraser. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website, www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Did you like the show, or do you have any feedback you'd like to share with us? Consider leaving us a written review and rating on Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. Instagram at Beyond the Headlines and Facebook, where our page is titled simply Beyond the Headlines. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves. <laughs>